Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Metacritic podcast. I am Mark Kelly, and I'm joined, as always, out of two iterations, James Kent. Hello, Mark. How are you going? Yeah, like rat shit, James. And I'll yeah, get I into that. Dying. I hear you're yeah. dying. That, I mean, that... <laughs> the rumours to that effect, <laughs> I think, have been exaggerated, but... I told you I was um, ill. <laughs> I, yeah, like definitely not, definitely not. Well, I mean, how definite can any of us be? And in the greater scheme of things, aren't we all? But uh, so, but before I get into complaining about my state of health, we neglected in the first podcast because it was basically kind of unplanned and free form, which is something I think we want to embrace here at Metacritic. But nevertheless, we didn't in any way introduce who we were or what we were doing. And I kind of feel like we probably should do that. You're probably right. You're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> you go first. Thanks for your support. I, yeah, so look, I'm, I'm, I mean, we, we in passing said who basically what, what the story is. I mean, I'm, I'm Mark Kelly and you know, you're James Kent. We said that and, and, you know, we're both philosophers. And, you know, that sounds always like a ridiculously pretentious thing to say. But, you know, we, we have PhDs in philosophy. I mean, that's really what I mean by that. Um, and, and nothing else. Like, I don't have any particular attachment at this point, as again, people who listen to the first podcast might realise, don't have any particular attachment to the title of philosopher. Nonetheless, it's descriptively accurate, both of my training and my many degrees in philosophy and um, also my professional status teaching philosophy at a university. James has a more precarious professional status, but also teaches philosophy at a university. I think that's right. That's right. I do. I do it. At, yeah, at Monash. Yeah. But Which it's is all where... casual. Well, this is where we met, right? This is, like, yeah. this is the, the long, strange story of our friendship where Mark actually started as my supervisor, well, my associate supervisor, on, at the very beginning when I was doing my MA. And what, how did we get chatting? I can't even remember. We started talking about Slayer, I think. But why would we start talking about Slayer? Well, okay, you okay, like so. a, but you used, to wear, you used to wear band shirts. Like, yeah, to and you told me not to. yeah, and you told me not to, which was right. <laughs> I'm, I'm this close and I'm holding my fingers very, very close together. Like I'm this close from, from starting doing that again. And I've definitely been doing it since we've been in lockdown and I've been, this is a weird thing. We're, we're off, we're off already, but yeah, it's, so, yeah we've, we've fucked it. Teaching, it's fine. It's fine. Own it. I can always splice the audio around, but I won't bother. But yeah, t- teaching universities, so I started teaching universities when I was like 24. And of course I was basically, you know, I looked like a student and I used yeah, to like, because I was like a moronic punk. I used to wear band shirts, often like offensive slogans on, to tutor yeah. students and um, thought I was really cool. But at a certain point, not that far into it, I realised that you want to create some kind of air of authority, which I accomplished basically by wearing collared shirts instead of band shirts. And I followed that, that formula pretty rigorously uh, for the last, you know, whatever, 15 years. Until the lockdown, and because I'm basically doing all my teaching from, from home, I just seemed, seemed wrong to dress up for it. So I, I kind of gave up, just start, started dressing normally. Although, you know, I try, I, I've, I have avoided the shirts with the more offensive imagery, and that is somewhat difficult, actually, because, you know, metal shirts, for example, often not really safe for work. James? No, that's right. I mean, my trajectory is exactly the same in the sense like I, when I, when I first met you, I was also 24. I just started teaching. 
And I think I probably wasn't as bad as you in the sense that I did wear collared shirts when I was teaching. But in other situations, I think in sort of like, you know, um, when, I, when I was in a student uh, situation, I, myself, I would wear band t-shirts. And that was when you, I think you took me aside quietly and were just like, this is probably not the best way to do things. And you were right, of course. But of course, yeah, so I followed that last probably, what, what is it, eight years, seven, eight years. And that's, how, that's how I've done it. So when you're teaching, you do have to have some air of authority, even if it's completely fake. And also you realise that the students want it too. That's the terrible thing, that the students want you to look like a middle-aged person, it's, which is horrific. Um, but then, yeah, with the lockdown, I've given up completely. I haven't worn a college shirt. I haven't worn my proper jeans for about four months. It's just... You wear your, your proper jeans? Yeah, my like, proper jeans. So the jeans that I would wear outside to where people were going to see me. What, what, are you, what are you wearing now, like it, cutoffs? No, they're just like, like really like terrible house baggy jeans that I would never be seen dead in. Whereas I have... Like, like, 20s throwback kind of jeans. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the jeans I would wear outside would be much tighter, which, 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 which kind of showcases my own age and when I came of age. Now, I've decided on this title, Metacritique, for this podcast, and I did, did this, I kind of plucked it out of the air, but I intend to stick to it rigorously, having made this totally arbitrary decision. And well, when I say rigorously, I don't mean that rigorously, obviously, because, um, you know, talking about the weather is not Metacritique in any recognisable sense. But nevertheless, in terms of a guiding mission to this podcast, I feel like this is, this is the go. We're exposed to a lot of critique or a lot of stuff that masquerades as critique, probably more to the point. We've got a lot of stuff now which, which you know, appears to be critical but is really dogmatic. And, you know, I, I feel there's a need for someone to, to critique the critiques at this point. No, I, I agree. And it's probably also worth, I mean, worth mentioning, I suppose, this, this, this is perhaps patronising for, for many of our listeners, uh, but, you know, it's probably worth... Uh, clarifying what we actually mean by critique here because I've noticed that the critique is often just used to mean sort of unambiguous criticism, right? But we mean it, I presume you mean it in the Kantian sense, right? Yeah, I mean, I take it, I always say this, uh, I don't know how true this really is because I don't speak ancient Greek, but that the, the origin of the, the word critique is, is from this kind of kritike, I don't know how you, I mean, pronouncing words in ancient Greek, but uh, K-R-I, T-I-K-E, I think, maybe it's kritikos, I can't remember. But anyway, the Greek term, and that the Greek term doesn't mean criticism in the, the kind of normal English sense, which implies a negative valuation. Rather, it means analysis, right? Analysis, so, right. So, yeah, so really it's a, it's a meta-analysis of things that, that call themselves analytical. On the other hand, despite the fact that I think, you know, we, we can have this at the back of our mind that the original Greek etymological reason of meaning of critique is not, critical in in the negative sense nonetheless when people talk about being critical or doing critique i think they generally do mean it in a negative sense and yeah. the stuff that i want to be critical of i think i probably do and want to be critical of in a slightly negative way and that stuff is itself negative so that's right and that is very much the mission right because i think attempting to meet critique with with positivity which i'm greatly tempted to do and certainly in in you know when we discuss this off the air we frequently discuss this, you know, discuss things in, in banally positive terms. That is, we, we talk about alternatives to the critical stances that we're meaning. But I think actually that's not very fecund. I think the double negative movement, the negation of the negation here, is, is potentially much more interesting. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And, and actually, I need to stop saying that because one of the people who listened to this podcast last week said, you keep saying, I think that's right. So it's become like a tick. So I need to stop doing that. But in that case, in that case, I, in this case, I do think it's right um, because, 
as you say, it's that kind of something much more interesting happens when you uh, are giving, as you say, the negative of the negative or the negation of the negation. So I'm on board. It sounds fun. I like the fact that we have no idea what's going on. And, and it seemed to resonate with the very few people that listened. So let's see what happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, very few is more people than, than I expected. So, you know, it's all Oh, good. me too. It's, so far, it's been a spectacular success. And, you know, certainly, certainly, of course, you know, if you want to disagree with me, you should go right ahead. But yeah, it's, it's metacritique, not autocritique. So there's no presumption that we're going to criticize each other. Yeah, it is, is a bit worrisome, possibly, that, you know, you're in a position of purely being here to agree with me or validate my opinions. But, you know, that's... Uh, I'm, not, I'm not Glaucon. We'll, 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 we'll work it out. We'll work it out. One, th- one note we had last time, something we're working on slightly this time, is some of the philosophical references went over people's heads. So James just made a reference to Glaucon, who is a, a character in one of Plato's dialogues. And honestly, I can't remember offhand which one. So, you know. I can't remember either. But he always agrees with Plato, right? Because this is the Socratic dialectic. It's, the idea is he, he draws you in and you can't help but agree with him. I said well, last time I'm not that big a fan of Plato. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty hacky, let's say, to write dialogues in which you have two people talking to each other. One of them is ventriloquizing your views and you put your views in the mouths of the most famous philosopher ever lived, Socrates, and then you have someone talking to him who just agrees with everything he says. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> pathetic. But uh... I actually had, I had a, a, a moment, this is years ago now, when I was teaching a class and I, I had like three pages of a, a platonic dialogue. I can't even remember which one it was now. And I was trying to illustrate a point and they just refused to read it. And then someone, they just said, Plato is boring. And then someone asked, why does Plato always talk with morons? <laughs> or in this case, Socrates. Um, and I just, I didn't have an answer. Very embarrassing. It, yeah. It's we tough. should go I mean, back to your is, sickness. You're yeah, dying. Yeah. No, I mean, would that it was so. I <laughs> was really sick this week and like kind of really got suddenly sick and you know thought i thought i might have covid19 i mean we're in these times now you know i had pause thinking that i might have covid19 because there is basically no evidence of community transmission occurring currently in new south wales unlike in victoria where you live james attended a protest correct at the weekend where you've presumably contracted it well i can only assume so i mean it's just i assume everyone who was at the protest has it now so i'm just waiting for the end i didn't really have the classic covid symptoms to be fair i didn't have a fever I didn't really have trouble breathing. I was very fatigued and had a kind of constant headache and, you know, runny nose. And I, but I went to get tested for COVID-19 uh, where, you know, they basically stick an extra large Q-tip to the entire way up your nose. I've heard it's really painful. Is it quite painful? Well, here's the thing. I mean, it's, it's like uncomfortable. It, it wasn't that painful. However, last night I woke up, I went to bed very early because I was so fatigued. Uh, went to bed at like 8.30 or something, woke up kind of 10.30, feeling like I'd been asleep all night. I thought it was the morning, but it was only the evening still. This incredible pain, like mainly in my teeth, but also my, my left ear. So it's definitely fo- focused on the left side of my face. And anyway, I took painkillers, you know, was up for hours, eventually went back to sleep. And then woke up this morning, I had, still had this kind of dull pain. It was nowhere near as bad as it was the previous night. But I realized that it was emanating from the location in my upper sinuses where this Q-tip had been thrust. And I'm still in, I can still feel it. You know, it's that thing, but weirdly I couldn't like the day after, but now I can acutely feel where they've stabbed me 
Because it's, it's... <laughs> Sorry. No. Just the, the rising the rising the rising rage was good. I like that. But here's 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 the thing. Have they, what are they have they bruised your brain or something? Did what? they tickle your brain and... <laughs> I don't I'm I'm not alleging that. And I, I don't believe that's what happened. I mean, you know, it's not what what did happen is like the the medical operative shoved this thing up my nose and was like, oh, I've got to keep going till I hit resistance. And anyway, you know, it was fine. But I, I did it wasn't that bad. But like, I feel like it's either ruptured something or bruised something deep in my sinuses. And here's the thing. Here comes but, the critique. <laughs> well, barely even. But here's, here, for utilitarian reasons, like they're not going to tell anyone that this is, this could be an epidemic, right? This could be like, everyone could be walking around with bruised sinuses, like, you know, bleeding from the back of their nose. And they're not going to tell you this because it will discourage people from going and get COVID-19 testing, which they desperately want everyone to do. And I mean, actually there obviously are rumors circulating the effect is quite uncomfortable. I'm here podcasting that actually, you know, I think they've, they've really damaged me doing this. I tried like Googling this to see, to see what evidence there was and couldn't find the thing. But we all know, we all know the alphabet would, would keep the truth from the people. <laughs> no, that's right. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I, a, f- a friend of mine whose daughter had to get tested, apparently it was like incredibly traumatic because the, the, the nurse or whoever it was basically told this kid, this kid's like seven, this is going to really hurt <laughs> before proceeding, trying to like put this huge Q-tip up her nose. And it just seems counter to what they're trying to do here, which is to say, get everyone tested. Why do you have to, why does it have to go up your nose? Like, why can't you just spit on something? Like surely, I mean, if it's there, well, it's they, there. I also, they also swabbed the back of my throat. But I right. think there's, there's real problems with these COVID-19 tests in the sense, I mean, you know, and this is not like, oh, they shouldn't do them. Oh, it's all, you know, a hoax or something. But they're not very good, right? And understandably so. And there's, there's, there's a notoriously case where people repeatedly take neg- test negative, even though they have symptoms and then only later test positive. People, yeah, there's a lot of false negatives out there. I'm not saying that I do still have it. I don't believe that's the case. But yeah, I, they're, they're not very good. And I, I take it that is the reason why they're so thorough about collecting the mucus right from the back of your nose, because you need to make sure that if there's any virus or an- antibodies, whichever one they're testing, they have to they have to actually collect it. So that's fine. You know, I've 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 my sinuses have been sacrificed on the altar of uh, utilitarian public health policy. As it should be, as it should be, that's perfectly appropriate. But you did indeed test negative, right? That's that's just to confirm I did. for our that concerned, is, concerned that listeners. Is, yeah, I tested negative. Which is good because I'm I'm both old and fat, as I've as I've mentioned to you, James. So I, like I mean, I, I, I'm in a risky I I mean, yeah. I mean, I would say riskier, but I mean, I don't know if you, I mean, I, I don't know about fat. I haven't seen you for a while, but you're certainly not old. You're older. Here's the thing. So relatively speaking, like I'm at much lower risk than someone like in their fifties would be, let alone someone in their sixties or seventies. You know, I mean, it, clearly it's a kind of, the, the curves, you know, slope steeply upwards. And, you know, by the time you get into your nineties, basically if you contract COVID-19 as a death sentence, but I'm like, I'm like 10 times as likely to get seriously ill than you would be. Is that, is that right? 10 times? I, I think that's right. Even though I'm much, I'm still, I mean, I think it's probably more like, t- you know, I'm 10 times less likely than someone who's 10 years older than me. But I'm not, I'm, don't quote me on those exact figures, but there's a, there's a really substantial uptick with age. 
and I'm I'm just about in the territory where I could theoretically die if I got COVID nineteen. Uh, whereas your age, I mean, it, it's it's such an incredibly unlikely outcome. Yeah, I think it is. I must admit, when when you, when you were saying that you, you know you're you know beginning to be of the age where you'll be at risk, I must admit I I didn't really. I mean, I believed you, but I also didn't believe you. And also, it's true that COVID nineteen for me has been an entirely abstract problem in the sense that you know even if you do contract it, there's very little uh, sense in which there's going to be much to worry about so i must admit it did actually it, it sort of struck me for the first this is such a naive thing to say but it really did strike me when you were when you were worried about it i go oh yeah he is quite old you know there, there was there was that there was that moment but i'm glad that you're well you, know, had the opposite opposite thought. Thought. you had the opposite thought well i mean i guess it's not necessarily an opposite thought but i've had the thought you know like maybe i need to get it now because it's going to become an endemic disease and the sooner i get it i've had it like, I don't want to put off getting it until I'm 50. I was talking to a friend who's, who knows more about this kind of stuff than us um, in the so far as he has a PhD in biology. And he, he said this, and this was, this was months ago when, when, the, when it was just kicking off before social distancing, all this kind of stuff. And he was saying that, literally. So I said, he said, now is the time to get it. Uh, and he was joking about, you know, licking poles and this kind of stuff, um, which I assume was in jest. But he, yeah, he, that, but he was serious about that position. He goes, now is precisely the time to get it because they're not going to get rid of it. This is going to be something that we just live with. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, t- there's, there's a clear difficulty here. On, on the one hand, I think it's, it's, that attitude is basically right in that it's ag- sceptical about the development of a vaccine. And I think this is, this is the correct position. There is literally no reason to believe it's possible to develop a vaccine against COVID-19. So the idea that, that we're going to get rid of it is, is very dubious. On the other hand, I think, it, I mean, there's very worrying indications, let's say, that you don't develop permanent immunity to it, which is precisely why then you can't develop a vaccine. So, I mean, this is, this is the real threat, or one of them, that it's just going to keep circulating, like the common cold, which is also a coronavirus does. And, you know, then we'll, you'll, you'll get it every three years, which, as you get older, will kill you. Yes, and I think, but this is, but this is, this is the number of it, isn't it? Because no one actually talks about it. because this is at least so far, this seems to be like the most likely scenario. You know, the idea that you know, when I when you read between the lines about the vaccine talk, there seems to be a, a fair. I mean, again, we're not experts in this, but there seems to be a fairly vocal section of that community that's saying no, that there are no guarantees with with a vaccine. You know, for example, SARS, they never found a vaccine for SARS. That's sort of ongoing. It's been largely largely eliminated, but you know, it still pops up. But that's right. Is it, no one's really talking about this because what it does, what it would do for things like the economy would be disastrous. The idea that this was just going to actually not end. And I've been reflecting on this a lot in, you know, you hear, I mean, I'm sure it's true the world over, but you hear about, about this return to normal, right? Whether it's in the economy or just like social practices or whatever. And it's just not clear at all that's going to be the case. This could just very well just be a lull until the second wave, which for all we know could be far worse. And I just, I guess I just, I haven't seen any evidence to think that this is over. Or to, sorry, sorry, to believe that this is over in any genuine way. I mean, what, what do you think? Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's right. You know, people are sounding this warning quite explicitly about the second wave and so on. The thing that is interesting here is the situation we're in Australia, which is except in the hell city of Melbourne, COVID-19 basically seems to be largely under control in Australia. Like it's, it's not really spreading the community which creates the possibility that Australia can just be quarantined permanently against it as it, as it is against, you know, rabies or something like this. 
that you know if if we basically keep the borders very selectively permeable then we can have no COVID-19 here and there was that very good article I thought you know this is months ago now by a couple of people from the, I think from the Grattan Institute who were saying that we needed to move towards elimination of COVID-19 because there were so many unknowns about it right so one one of them being what we've already alluded to namely the extent to which it might be able to reinfect people but I think probably more importantly we don't know anything about the long-term effects of having had an infection. So we don't know, for example, whether it causes all kinds of post-viral syndromes or you know, latent effects, organ damage, all this kind of stuff. For, from that point of view, I think it's really imperative that we lock down Melbourne as soon as possible to prevent Melbourne from infecting the rest of the country. This is not entirely possible. I mean, I think it's, I think it's Victoria that's... I don't know, because there were eight new cases the other day and there'd been none for a long time. And there were eight. Only one of them was from the protest, and there were seven others. I don't know where they were distributed in Victoria, though. So, but it is interesting because I think ScoMo is having a uh, he's having a meeting with the premiers. I think this morning. So, which I I, I imagine that's what's going to be on the agenda. Locking it's down Melbourne. Locking down Melbourne, and they're never talking. Because I was kind Melbourne. of joking. No, but I know you were joking. But I think I mean this is kind of what the rest of Australia wants, right? Like secretly, or not even secretly. The way it's worked in Australia is almost every state has locked down its borders with the other states, with two exceptions being the most popular states, Victoria and New South Wales, in which James and I are respectively situated. And the New South Wales government seems to have taken a very strong line against border closures. There's, I mean, there's also a very weird effect here where Victoria has taken basically, other than in the case of the question of border closures, Victoria's taken, and Victoria's Premier Daniel Andrews, who I think James and I both agreed is something of a legend. Andrews has, has taken this extremely strong line on you know, wanting to close everything down, particularly school closures, uh, taking the toughest line of any of the, the state premiers. However, M- Melbourne, Victoria has ended up with the worst coronavirus problem. Until fairly recently, it was always New South Wales that had the biggest problem, which had a, had a kind of rather lighter approach. And I, I think that, you know, probably what, what we're seeing is that paradoxically and surprisingly, that lighter approach, and I wouldn't have predicted this at all. I was very, very much on board with kind of the Andrews approach. But paradoxically, that lighter approach actually is more efficacious. That uh, I've got to assume that somehow the harder approach taken in Melbourne has actually, whether it's, you know, produced a kind of, <laughs> produced kind of overconfidence. So okay. the idea that because, because things are so locked down in Melbourne, people are individually doing less, you know, I think that that's one possibility. Or there's also the possibility that, you know, under, under stricter controls, people will try to evade them in a way they wouldn't with looser things. Or, or, you know, in certain people, it generates a kind of backlash or contempt. I mean, you know, Melbourne you know, is actually the only place where there was a sizable demonstration against the lockdown, I believe, in Australia, which is surprising given that Melbourne is the most left-wing city in Australia. Dan, Dan Andrews declared a state of emergency. Did they do that in New South Wales as well? No, that's another, that's, another, but that's another really clear difference. In fact, I believe that was the only state of emergency. Maybe not, but definitely we anyway, didn't have one in New South Wales. Yeah, so, so there, was, there, was, there was this kind of sudden shutting down, you know, the pubs closed, all that kind of stuff closed, and then there was this very strict, I guess, a kind of curfew, really. And, you know, and, and also the cops were finding people. So, like, the, the, so the, the, the amount of cops at the Victorian police 
gave out, you know, dwarfed any other state, right? And it was, you know, it's like a $1,600 fine. Anyway, but that went for like, I think it went for, how long did that, that actual lockdown go for? The really strict one, I think it was three or four weeks, five weeks, I'm not sure. But when the, when the, when the lockdown was eased, and Dan Anders was very specific, specific about this. He was just saying like, they're not over, they're just easing. Here are the new rules. But I, I sensed immediately there was just a kind of complete release from everyone. So everyone went back to acting completely normal. Social distancing was completely uh, invisible in all social, basically all sort of social spaces other than when they're enforced, like, like you, know, you can't go to the footy. So whether that was due to the response to the, the stricter lockdown, I don't know, but it's probably true. I think that's probably true. And now certainly it seems like, because obviously where I live is a kind of holiday destination or a weekend destination. And the minute the lockdown ended, even though Dan Andrews had specifically, you know, don't go around, don't, don't go around to other, your holiday houses or whatever, Everyone, that, that, that advice has been completely ignored. I've got it. I mean, anecdotally, or, or based on my own experience, I think things are pretty similar here. I mean, when the, I mean, it, I don't think, I don't think there was ever a point where social distancing was well observed on the street in particular here. Supermarkets, yeah. people have got a lot better actually than they were. Just for me to go anywhere out of my house, I have to go down tiny footpaths, uh, which basically are choke points. So it, basically if I want to go, if I, if I go out of my house and turn left, I have to cross a railway bridge, which has a very small footpath and people are basically forced together on it. Uh, and if I go the other way, I'm not on the railway bridge, but I'm on a very narrow footpath, which goes past cafes, which have had queues of people out the front or people milling around waiting for their coffee because they haven't been able to go in. And basically it's impossible for me to leave my house without, unless I do it and I you know, was doing it earlier on in the piece, um, making sure I do it either very early in the morning or late at night. But any time during the day, I was going to have to walk within, never mind two metres, but within 10 centimetres of something. There was no way to actually actually do that social distancing in practice. I mean, more generally speaking, you're a bit of a germ foe, aren't you, Mark? A little bit? Or is that my, that's am right. I inventing that's that? Right. That's right. Yeah. It's one of the many similarities between me and President Donald Trump. <laughs> and so, so this was anxiety-inducing for you? Yeah, but only, only because of the COVID-19. Because I often say... My germophobia is um, very theoretical and I'm not good at practicing my germophobia. But what I mean by that is like, I'm inherently like a pretty slovenly and gross guy. So like, if I don't really focus, I will accidentally do things that are totally disgusting and obviously risk infecting me. So I don't, you know, I don't natively keep my distance from other people or avoid spitting on them or, you know, I have to do this very constantly. But being in the conditions of the lockdown and so on, I became like very, very aware. I'm very aware of this two meter distance. And I feel like, I feel like the great majority of people don't understand what two meters is or 1.5 meters, whatever it was. But either way, like, I feel like people were, you know, pretty shit at it. Uh, no, nonetheless. Two meters is a fucking long way. Oh, uh, it really is. It's, it's like tall, it's longer than my entire body length. You know? That's right. And, uh, you've got to be like, you've got to be like, like a, a Mark Kelly and something. Between yeah. each other, which yeah. is horrifying. But, <laughs> but the thing, the thing about this though is, I mean, it, the evidence has kind of come out now, effectively, and I, so I've kind of stopped caring about this because it's w- when you look at where people get infected. Basically, people are not getting infected by walking past someone on the street. Like maybe if someone coughs directly into your face or something. But when people get infected, it's, they have to have a certain viral load. Basically, people get infected by spending time with someone over an extended period, like an hour or more. Uh, in a, generally in enclosed space as well, not outdoors. So actually, this was never an issue. And this is precisely what I think this, this kind of reflects. 
the fact that I don't think that was ever well observed in New South Wales has no real effect because that wasn't actually the problem. What the problem was, was people spending time with other people uh, in enclosed spaces. And, you know, that, that basically stopped happening during the lockdown or, or to enough of an extent. I'm not totally clear why this didn't stop happening in Melbourne. One, one problem in Melbourne surely is that it's colder than Sydney, which encourages people to be indoors more. Maybe, maybe it's just that. Now, I'm conscious that we've gone a long time now and been really discussing COVID-19 uh, associated issues. I feel like there is something we have to discuss, particularly because it follows up what we discussed last time, which is the, the ongoing development of a thing which I am even more, you know, at a loss to name at this point. I mean, last time we talked about the protests in the United States and then those protests, uh, seeding protests outside the United States, obviously in Australia and the United Kingdom, protests against the police treatment of black people, basically. What's been in the news this morning is to do with basically corporations cancelling old shows. I mean, that is because now everything's available on streaming services, the removal from streaming services of a series of mostly British, but some Australian comedies, American, older American movies. I mean, the thing that really strikes me, which is it's already create, you know, there in the difference I have of naming what's going on, is how incredibly oblique any relationship of this is to protesting against police violence against ethnic minority. Yeah. There's so much. There's so much to talk about here, and I've been I've been mulling it over all morning. I think the most interesting thing about no, not the most interesting. One of the most interesting things about this is the way in which, you know, for example, a genuine grassroots movement of in inverted commas the people, such as Black Lives Matter, and the kind of extremely cynical and insincere actions of say corporations to do things like takeaway shows how these two things are conflated or at least treated to be part of the same phenomenon right when as far as i can see they're completely analytically distinct i mean one is one is a genuine one is a genuine sort of uh event uh, and the other is a cowardly response to the mood i suppose but there, there is i think here an important bridging phenomenon between these two things which are apparently very disconnected and it is the shift of the protests towards symbolic protest in the, the removal of statues. I think this, this is what's really catalyzed this because there, there seems to have been, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to tell whether this was a shift in focus that was deliberate or spontaneous among protest organizers or a kind of media narrative thing. But it's, it's become clear that you know, watching all this stuff as I am through the media, through this, this terrible lens, really. But it's basically gone from this being about burning down police stations, you know, a week ago, to it being about removing statues. That, that being where all the noise is. I mean, there's, there are exceptions. I mean, particularly that what's happening in Seattle is an exception to this that, that seems much more substantive and... Um, we could discuss that possibly, but this this shift then kind of opened up the possibility of, you know, a, a kind of, ah, oh, yes, we, we just need to, to get rid of symbols of racism, which is so much easier, right, to address. The removal of statues is something that, you know, kind of mainstream politicians have got on board with. 
uh, in a lot of cases. And because it's something they can do, and let's be really clear, something they can do very, very easily. There's almost no economic expense involved. It requires them to do to do effectively nothing. It requires them to send a work crew to remove a statue and pay, you know, whatever, a thousand, a thousand pounds to do it. Yeah, and I mean, this come, my, my question about this, and I, I, I'm a bit torn in this, because I mean, there's been, the, the debate about removing statues has, has happened in the past. You know, this has been sort of bubbling away over the last, I don't know how long it was, five, ten years, something like that. I'm not sure. But I'm sort of torn in the sense that on the one hand, I see the absolute merit in removing symbols of racism, right? But it's just it's unambiguous to me. And also the fact that a lot of these statues are just a bit crap, right? It's just the, the, the aesthetic point is that none of, we're not missing anything by having these statues removed. On the other hand, I'm sus- suspicious is too strong a word, but curious about it because, as you say, it's basically being co-opted by the mainstream now. You know, the politicians are very open to it. There's, there's, you, you see it being done. And on the other hand, it's more kind of theoretical curiosity, which is to say... What's actually being achieved by doing it? Like, what are we actually saying about our sort of, you know, dark histories by removing a statue? Is, is it just a case of, is the removing of the statue just the acknowledgement of those dark histories and then we continue to talk about it? Or is it a kind of repression of those histories? I, I genuinely don't know. I'm just, I'm genuinely curious about what it actually, what this phenomenon actually sort of describes of what is actually happening. I think you hit the nail on the head there, really, James, in terms of this, this question of the, the meaning of removals of statues in history, because this is a, a really broad issue. I mean, it's, like I, I have a, a general thesis about this, which is in this now quite untimely article that I've got coming out in the new issue of Telos, which is out next week. It's called Foucault and the Politics of Language Today. That's, that's and, your local newsstand. Yeah. Well... I mean, you say that, but I mean, actually, although it won't be at your local newsstands, but Telos is like a print publication that you probably can buy at like Blue Books in Sydney or Borders in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you certainly, so you can buy it in very, very academic tier book, bookstores. Um, unlike most academic journals, which you can't, you know, you, you've got to write away especially to get. But my, my very general theory here is that people have, I mean, we have as a culture got this idea of, uh, the, the, the way the symbolic relates to the political that implies that the symbolic causes the political to exist the way it does, what I, what I call reverse mimesis. So, that, and therefore the idea of, is if we, if we change our symbols, we'll change, change political reality. And I think the opposite is much closer to the truth, namely that symbols are much more likely to be a kind of epiphenomenal reflection of political realities. So, I mean, the, the existence of these statues is a reflection, by and large, of the fact that, you know, there was, you know, has been, still is, of course, but, you know, has been this very racist political culture that has lauded, valorised people who are Confederate generals or slave traders and all this, this kind of stuff. But the idea that because these symbols were generated, in that, but by that context, the idea that removing them somehow strikes back against that context, I think, is is basically vacuous. I, I want to go this far, which is to say, I don't see any evidence that removing symbols is efficacious politically at all in in this way. And this this is a very broad area of debate. I mean, a, a really crucial example of this going on in Australia for a long time is the the campaign to change the date of Australia Day. And I, I think there's a really clear reason to do this because. And I'm very sympathetic to it. I mean, I, I you know, have, have been going to Invasion Day rallies for years. 
to, to protest against you know the celebration of Australia Day. Because Australia Day, anyone who's not Australian, marks the day when the first fleet of colonists arrived in, in Sydney to, to colonise Australia, to begin white, white colonisation. That's seen as the birth of the Australian nation, which obviously is extremely problematic and it's offensive to, to other groups, most obviously First Nations people in Australia, who, who obviously really rue this event. Uh, I mean, uh, to be honest, I think it's it's even from a from the perspective of European Australians, very problematic thing to celebrate because we're basically so you know you're celebrating the arrival of enslaved. It's a very uh, loaded term, but in, in, you know indentured prisoners, convicts uh, in in a penal colony. I mean, it's the idea that this can be even from a from a even if you're like a white supremacist to to really imagine the settlement of Australia as this this great event. Is is in itself like very revisionist. So the the point I want to make, actually, getting back to what you were saying, James, I feel like I've got off it because I feel like you really you had hit the nail on the head, and I've now just got off talking about my own stuff. For ages. Yeah, you fucked it. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the 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 question the question is like what what is the what is the relation to history? Because if you change the date of Australia Day, yes it removes this venue for the celebration of the colonisation of Australia because you, you don't want to celebrate that. The, the problem is that it effaces the, the very fact of that colonisation at the same time. So it, it, allow, and it allows what, what I've always thought was a very dangerous tendency to suggest that Australia is not founded in that colonisation moment because even though I don't, I, I think, I, I don't want to celebrate it, I think... It should be historically recognised that Australia is a confederation of colonies, all of which are, you know, be- began, uh, except for South Australia's penal colonies, and regardless of that, have this horrendous history that Australia is genealogically the, the descended from these colonial institutions and still has a colonial constitution at a federal level, as well as as well as all of its state institutions being colonial. And so the idea that we're just going to go, oh, no, Australia didn't begin as a colonial enterprise, it's actually a wonderful multicultural society, strikes me as really dissimulating about what Australia is. And from that point of view, very problematic. So, you know, removing the visible symbols of, of racism potentially is just dissimulating about what's going on. I mean, it really, it's, it's the kind of, you know, if, if you do that without doing anything, anything more underlying, which is exactly what, what the kind of corporate, let's forget, let's ignore the fact that, you know, there were, there were you know, comedies with the N-word in them that were made within living memory, or, you know, we'll just, we'll just try and whitewash all of this um, problematic history out of the, the frame. That really potentially serves to do the exact opposite of what you want, which is to acknowledge the existence of and combat racism. Yeah, and I think this this really comes down to the weird and ambiguous intersection of history and myth-making, which is sort of, I guess, so, sort of my wheelhouse, but also at the same time, I have actually nothing particularly exciting to say about it because it is so confusing. But I also think, just to go briefly back to the, 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 the statue thing, is that, you know, I share your concerns about it in terms of what's actually happening, what we're achieving by removing them. But I also, equally vacuous is the kind of, you know, conservative response, which is to say, oh, no, we need to keep the statues because it reminds us of where we've come from or, or, you know, some kind of equally vacuous comment like that, which is also bullshit because it actually doesn't do that in that sense. And that's that's what I mean, I think, in, in that sense, you know, having the statue actually achieves nothing 
removing it also probably achieves nothing. As you say, like it, it's, I think it's an inversion of what the, sim, the symbol actually does in the political sphere. Um, but I think then that's kind of why I ultimately side with, for the most part, those wanting to remove the statues, because in that sense, there's no inherent harm in it necessarily if it, if it means something symbolically to some people. But the next step is to say, don't for a minute think that anything will come of that necessarily, right? Of, of that, you know, the, the other example here is, you know, um, the toppling of the Saddam statue um, in 2003. You know, you know this, this was this huge symbolic event and, of course, it actually meant nothing um, in terms of the situation in Iraq and the, the military situation yeah. in Iraq, right? I'm glad you brought that up because I've seen it. I've seen some reference to that in the media, and I remember watching TV live as that happened. Yeah, me too. And, and um, I mean, the thing that really struck me about it at the time is what a preposterously staged event it was, like staged yeah, by yeah. the occupation authorities with very little Iraqi participation. But the U.S. occupation forces began demolishing it, and then obviously got orders to stop doing that and let some Iraqis do it. And then, like a few Iraqis showed up and did some demolition, but like a tiny number. Yeah. I mean, this idea that you have to, as I say, it's so right. It's not like, it's not uniquely, you know, it's both sides of politics are doing this. I mean, it's, it's like the fall of the Berlin Wall and all this stuff. This, this, this substitution of symbols for reality in, in the political domain is, is extraordinary. Perhaps it's been around for a very long time. I really, I really don't know. But anyway, I, I want to echo what you said about the, the statues in the sense that like, I'm not in any sense, you know, something I don't have in common with President Donald Trump is the idea that we need to preserve our history by preserving these statues. It, I'm not shedding, shedding tears for the destruction of statues. But I, I do think there's, these, these statues are in a kind of slightly weird space historically. Something that does occur to me is that, you know, you, you, you haven't seen people tearing down, you know, statues of medieval English kings because of their roles in the you know, crusades or something. Right. There's there's a period historically where things are far enough back. And I think the, the, the mark is somewhere around the kind of 400, 500 years ago point where people stop seeing these as examples of living history and see them as purely a historical relic. Right. And therefore, there's no kind of political impetus to destroy them. But there's, you know, these statues are precisely statues that are in this weird space of being they're, they're from recently enough to be politically contentious but from long enough ago to be, to, to be really on the nose. Yeah, I think they, they all seem to be, um, I think what's most interesting about this is that they all seem to be roughly speaking what you could call in, you know, very vaguely the, the modern era, you know, um, sort of roughly from the Enlightenment onwards, um, give or take. And I think this tells us a lot because it almost seems as if we now sort of very lazily think that that era is the era in which we perhaps should have known better. Whereas anything before that is we just accept, for example, the middle ages were fucked up. And, and then, and then, so we kind of just, as you say, we just let them go, which I think is actually a fundamental misunderstanding of, you know, for example, the middle ages, but also of our modern era. And by, by which I mean, like, you know, the enlightenment onwards, you know, it's a, it's a misunderstanding of both eras. And I think, and, and then broadly speaking, it's a misunderstanding of history entirely. The idea that we go from, you know, the, the, I think, I don't know about what, how you feel about this, Mark, but the, the, the expression I find most frustrating is that cut is the one that says that appeals to the year, the appeals to the year it is in relation to some kind of progressive cause. Namely, it's 2020, get with it. And the implication being, you know, overcome your whatever dogma we're talking about, right? And as, as well-intentioned as that might be, 
there's just nothing to imply that history is a, is, is a progress from barbarism to enlightenment. There's just, there, there is no evidence of that. And which is why I think it comes down to the misunderstanding of history. So to go back to the changing of the date, for example, it's interesting you say that because clearly, clearly January the 26th should not be celebrated, right? For multiple reasons. The worry I have is that if we change the date, I don't think we should celebrate the new date either. Right? And it seems to be, I don't think there's any grounds for celebration at all. Right. And, and the implication, of course, but of course, and this is where you see the, when people start to, when, for example, corporations jump on these narratives, the idea is now that we've changed the date, for example, we now live in a progressive multicultural society, or we can finally embrace our identity as one. But of course, you know, things like, for example, uh, indigenous deaths in custody continue, um, or whatever it might be. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, I think I, my my position on change of date for quite a while has been that there is simply no need for Australia to have a national day. I mean, this is partly informed by the fact that you know I come from England and we don't have a national day, and we've never had one. And um, I mean, there's there's some things that might strike you know be be kind of seen as candidates for that. And there's been some attempt to promote St George's Day as a national day, but um, yeah, it's 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 not necessary. And uh, I, I, yeah, I, th- I that that would be my preference. But I mean, it's it's clear that the the narrative around this is you know one that wants to establish a kind of Australian nationalism, but a kind of a, a, a post-ethnic Australian nationalism. I mean, this is this is the discourse in Australia and has been. You know, for a long time on on the left, which is, you know, Australia and Australians are valid categories, inclusive categories, which, which should be lauded, despite the fact that that excludes, you know, everyone who isn't Australian. I mean, you know, so potentially non non citizens who live in Australia, people who live outside Australia, um, you know, I, that that yeah, that that entire category seems to me. So obviously, it's legally necessary in our current system, but the 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 need to, you know, celebrate Australian identity uh, in, in its diversity. Um, you know, I, I think I think it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree. But I mean, this comes down to the, the, the nub of it in the Australian context, right? And this comes back to what you said about uh, the fact that, you know, January 26th is even, even from the... Uh, the English in, in, in invader context is probably, you know, a pretty ambiguous day. Um, but, you know, Australia actually doesn't have any sense of itself at all. They're, they're actually, our, our kind of wild desire to have an identity uh, covers the fact that we have none. And this, I think you see this in particular sort of post John Howard culture wars, the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, right? And I've, we've talked about this before in the past. And this, maybe this is just my pet peeve. But what really fucks me up is the kind of continuing kind of blurring together of Australia Day, Anzac Day and Remembrance Day, right? And in particular, the first two, right? And so I remember in the 90s being in primary school, you know, Anzac Day having a particular kind of uh, character, you know, obviously as a child, one's memories are, you know, uh, vague, but... Certainly, I don't remember the kind of nationalism that we now associate with it. And things like, you know, the Herald Sun, for example, giving away Australian flags in commemoration of, 
Anzac Day, even though the Anzacs weren't even fighting under that flag at the time, is just this kind of wild mythification of history. And, and it comes down to this idea of, you know, the birth, the nation being born on the shores of Gallipoli. Um, look, there's lots to unpack here, and it, it's all been done by people better than us. But it is just, the, the, the point is, really, is just Australia has no idea what to think of itself. None, as far as I can tell. And which is, I think, also partly why there's such resistance to the change to date, because it actually draws out the fact that our so-called founding moment is bullshit. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting. I mean, it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, I was tempted to say, so obviously Anzac Day is, is, is completely and wildly ludicrous in terms of the signification that's accorded to it. And it's, it's effectively just Australia Day too on, on the current. That's right. But, but, but that is quite recent. Like that's the last 15, 20 years, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's right. But yeah, this, this, but Australia Day, Australia Day 1, you know, made, made sense within a particular, you know, particular mid 20th century mindset. And one of the things that's so just off the chart bothersome to me about, about all this is how recent it is. So the invention of, so, I mean, I, mean, and I, I wish kids were taught this in school because I assume, I assume they're not, right? I mean, but, so, you know, the, Australia is such a recent invention as it's currently conceived. The idea of Australia as a nation state. So at a legal level, like, I mean, the earliest possible date for that, of course, is Federation in 1901. But, you know, the, the creation of Australia as a dominion of the British Empire in 1901 is not the creation of a nation. Australian citizenship didn't come into existence until, you know, with the 1950s. The, uh, you know, Australian national anthem didn't come into existence till, uh, you know, what we're talking, the 70s. The, the idea that Australia was definitively a separate nation that wasn't part of the British Empire dates to like the 90s in terms of the legal decision actually being made that Australia and Britain were separate countries, right? So this is, this is really recent history. So within Australia, living memory. Yeah, uh, no, but within, you know, within mine. I mean, that yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I mean, ours. <laughs> but there, there are people around today who, when they were born, were not, there's still people around Australia who are legally British subjects, not Australian citizens, yeah. because when they were born, Australian citizenship didn't exist. And yeah. this... The, so the way Australians conceive themselves in the mid 20th century, at least the way, you know, the dominant section of the Australian community conceived themselves was as British and Australian. Australian was just a type of being British. Yeah. And that, that's what's... So Australia Day made sense from that point of view because Australia Day was the point at which Australia became a British colony and therefore the British Australia was inaugurated. And... If Australia, you know, as and Australia still, let's be clear, still has elements of this. Australia's Australian flag still has the Union Jack on it, and yeah. Australian money still has the Queen's head on it, and the Queen is still the head of state in Australia. Australia still has the British monarchy. Between those things, Australia is still, it, it's not an entirely distinct nation state. And from that point of view, the, with 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 the monarchy and the flag, that the date of Australia Day celebrates the creation of Australia as what it is still to some extent, namely a British colony. And yep. the, the, yeah, so the attempt to, I mean, there's a whole, and of course there, there is a certain attempt on all those dimensions to change it. So to, to bring in an Australian Republic, the flag actually, I think is probably the least, the, the, the one that people least like to touch, particularly after the New Zealand experience. Yeah, and I think this is, I mean, this is, to go back to the to the late 80s, early 90s, I mean, this is, I mean, love him or hate him, this is kind of what Paul Keating was trying to do, isn't it? Is he was trying to 
to stop, to, to, to actually forge Australia as a nation in and of itself in the Asian century, um, you know, tr trying to, you know, things like the Redfern speech, you know, trying to uh, reconcile yourself as a nation with your past, which is what, because he says this, you know, this is what you need to do to actually be an independent nation. Now, we may disagree with that and think it's nonsense, or we may think his attempts to do so were nonsense, but that is really what he was trying to do. And this is what Howard explicitly goes back on. And the only way you can go back on is this kind of weird, on the one hand, you have to tip your hat to the monarchy, but also insist that Australia was a country, for example, forged on the shores of Gallipoli, which is clearly not true. It's clearly false. Like this, and this is where it comes back to the history question. Is that this is a pure mythification. So Australia, I mean, all countries rest on myths, but Australia, perhaps more than many countries, rests on a complete mythification of its history. And it sort of it subconsciously knows this, which is why it resists any attempt to actually confront that. So whether it's things like um, the apology to the stolen generation, which, you know, there are now, it's one of those extraordinary things where, you know, uh, there is empirical evidence of the stolen generation, which is just denied, right? And so anything that brings into question that broader problem of Australian identity and Australian history is just denied. Um, yeah. I mean, with the key thing, you, you isolate the other side of this. So there's, there's really two kind of competing understandings of what Australia is. One of them is really inchoate. So it's the, it's the, the right-wing version, which is descended from the understanding of Australia as British, but has now basically disavowed that, but oddly is still attached to, to some of the remnant elements of it. Exactly. And I, I think this is partly possible because British identity itself has become so redefined in a multicultural direction. So the connection to Britain no longer has to mean, you know, connections to whiteness or something like that. Uh, but yeah, so there's that right-wing version, which is, is kind of pure, pure reaction in the sense that it doesn't have any positive vision or anything like that. It, it's merely conservative, doesn't want to change any of these things. And that's really the response to, you know, changing the date for Australia Day. It's just like, oh, shut up, you wowsers. Like, we want to keep having a barbecue yeah. on the 26th of January. Like, exactly. you know, it's not hurting anyone. Um, and I don't know what it says to that because really the, the alternative side is, is I mean, there's, there's a specifically kind of Aboriginal side to this, which says this is deeply offensive to us, please stop it, which is, is basically right. But on the other hand, it, it, it has the, the, in itself, this isn't, this isn't what's needed, right? What's needed is this substantive changes to the way that Aboriginal people are treated in Australia, which frankly, I just don't trust that change of civilization to do, do anything for at all. As you say, it, there, there is actually a risk that it could make it worse in the sense that it actually convinces people that something substantive has been done. And which also does at the same time, that doesn't ignore the symbolic importance of these things. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I think, honestly, I think there's a real danger of this happening in Australia that at, at the moment, because Australia is still clearly and legibly a colonial society, right? That it still has colonial era institutions where you can see, okay, the Australian state is de descended from those colonies that were planted in this country and did all this harm to Aboriginal people. That it's possible to therefore configure, okay, Australia owes Aboriginal people everything, really, right? That their land has been stolen, they've been dispossessed, they've been, you know, wronged in, in so many ways, killed, massacred. So, and there's a clear, there's a clear um, possible interlocutor here. I mean, particularly from the point of view of having a treaty, which, uh, you know, it's something that Keating also wanted, which 
you know, I think is what has, has been badly needed in this country and, and has been a huge, I mean, at points we seem to be getting quite close to it, but it hasn't happened. It's possible to have potentially a treaty between First Nations people in Australia and, and the Australian state. I think what the danger here is that the Australian state redefines itself so much by saying, okay, we've had so many immigrant groups come into this country who have nothing to do with colonialism, that we get rid of all the bearings of empire, we no longer have the union flag, we no longer have the, the monarch. There's a, there then, you can then have a deniability, that you can say, well, the average Australian in whatever year, 2050, is no longer in any way, you know, they're, they're not like an Anglo-Australian who has nothing to do with colonialism. Therefore, you can make the argument, which of course was Howard's argument always, right? The argument, oh, well, yep. people today aren't responsible for the deeds of their ancestors. Yep. But it's a lot more plausible if we're not even talking about their ancestors. If we're talking mm. about, and I, I think I, I think that that's that's the danger really here is, is um, that, you, you get into a, a stage of plausible deniability where the state can can deny any responsibility or wrongdoing because it no it claims to be a different state to the state that, that did this, and that's a hundred percent where the, the kind of woke washing in the media is going right. That you know that the, everyone wants to um, deny that that their corporation or has has any links to any any negative things that therefore they're they're exculpated. I mean, everyone basically wants to exculpate themselves from this. Yep, absolutely. And I think this is why on the, I'm very torn by this because, you know, uh, someone like, you know, Kevin Rudd, when he gave the apology to the Stolen Generation, he copped a lot of flack for it later because the idea was it was purely symbolic and kind of meant nothing, that nothing came from it. And there were, you know, obviously pragmatic political reasons for that too, insofar he got shafted before he could actually implement some of the changes he wanted to. Um, but I also, and this is the bleeding heart in me, and I don't know what you think about this, but this is, this is, this is when I watched that apology in Parliament, and you and you see the you see um, the people who are watching from outside Parliament and inside Parliament, the people you know people who were stolen, you know, uh, and the way and and their the ways they react to that apology and their their, their tears and their weeping, like I still find that profoundly moving. And I know, and it's clear that that apology, in spite of its sort of symbolic nature, was vitally important. Now, whether it's just a sort of, in inverted commas, first step, uh, I don't know. But it clearly meant something to many. And that also seems important to me. Although what it actually means, I don't know. I feel like I'm at my closest point thus far to being in disagreement with you, James. I feel like this... Yeah. This, this, no, this is what I feel... I, yeah, I thought because this, might be the case. this tends towards a kind of phenomenological reading of, of the political, to me. Because this, this and, and I think that's another kind of contemporary confusion that I, I, I rue. I mean, the idea that, of course, it's what you say is true, right? But because something, you know, feels good or, I mean, not just feels good, but is, is meaningful or satisfies the people who are involved. I mean, again... The kind of to, it's very important to give agency to people who were stolen, and say, you know, that that they absolutely they need recognition, and that the state needs to give them that, and it's good that the, the, that they got that uh, from from that apology. But I think there's two really obvious problems with that apology, and I don't think you're denying this particularly. But I mean, one one really obvious problem with the apology, and I think you're you're right to suggest that this might be partly because of the absolute bastardry of the removal of Kevin Rudd, 
like the you know most infamous events of the the 20th century the 21st century thus far in Australian politics. <laughs> what happened post that apology is that the ch- child removals from Aboriginal people in Australia went to levels that were higher than during the stolen generations. So literally there was an apology for the stolen generations and then another generation was stolen. Yeah. It, it, it's it be, beyond belief. Although of course with different, you know, window dressing. Uh, but, you know, so it wasn't explicitly, we need to remove, remove children from black people to, you know, get, for, for kind of eugenic reasons. But, you know, it doesn't matter that they, again, I mean, this gets back to, to questions of kind of phenomenology or sort of subjectivity. Like, I don't care what the intentions behind the removals are. If it has the same consequences, is it, you know, that, that's, that's what matters. So, and then the, the other problem with the apology is that it was widely understood. I mean, I haven't seen surveys about this, but definitely, you know, perhaps I've been too phenomenological myself, but when you talk to people about that, people on average seem to understand the apology, not as an apology for the stolen generations, but as a blanket apology by Rudd for everything that had been done to Aboriginal people in Australian history, and that that was drawing a line under it. So there was was a widespread public feeling, I think, after the apology that, oh, Rudd has now apologised to Aboriginal people. Aboriginal people, from this take forward, no longer have any reason to complain about anything, which was insane. Yeah, that's actually a really good corrective to what I said. I mean, I still stand by my original point, but I also agree entirely with what you're saying. And that is, I think that actually gets to the gets to the heart of what we were talking about more broadly, which is to say, you know, there's the risk that these symbols make things worse because under under the under the sort of assumption that things have, you know, history has now finished, as it were, we can now sort of or not, you know, get on with things, as it were. Um, and this is re- this is a real, and this is something I, I cannot resolve in my thinking. And this comes back to my utter utter sort of theoretical confusion at the moment, because I agree with you completely. And in particular, the continuation of of, of, the, of another of another stolen generation after the apology is just despicable on every level. But on the other hand, that apology really fucks me up in a good way, uh, in the sense that it, it it really moves me. And I think this is the kind of I don't know. Is it a, is it a kind is it a, is it is it like mysticism is it is it Catholicism I, I don't I don't know but it's it's something in me that that is profoundly moved by that by that apology and maybe that's just my own mistake right myth this is a kind of lily lilied bleeding bleeding heart that, that, that kind of you know is kind of begging for this symbolism. So maybe, maybe this could just be an, an unconscious desire for me to, you know, absolve my own sins. I don't know. I really don't know, but it really moves me that apology. Yeah. I mean, you're really tugging at my heartstrings with some of the signifiers you're invoking there, James. I think that's uh, not something that would escape you, but I mean, I think, I think this is right in the sense that like, I think the apology was necessary, but not sufficient. Like the apology absolutely had to happen, but it was, it was way too little and and yeah. having standing just as that i mean for whatever reason that that's been the case seems to invite this interpretation of the self-sufficiency of that really really limited gesture yeah. and that's a real real problem and, you know i mean this was such i don't know really if you remember this stuff but 
Howard consistently refused to say sorry. It was a real, I mean, it, it was a real kind of political shibboleth during the, the kind of Howard years, the demand that, that there had to be a national apology, the refusal to do it, then right as the first Labour Prime Minister after Howard actually issuing the apology. It was this kind of real pent up, there had to be an apology. Um, and, you know, okay, it was from, from, from that point of view, like, really good that it came because previously there hadn't been an apology. But um, yeah, there's a much wider discourse here really around reconciliation and what that means, because I feel that there's, you know, what, what certain sets of the community got an impression of was that the reconciliation had been affected by that, by that gesture, which obviously yeah. was ridiculous. I mean, I don't think anyone who seriously was an advocate of reconciliation ever meant something as thin as that. But, uh, I mean, also not to mention that the, the Northern Territory intervention didn't end. I mean, it was... Yeah. I think the point you make about it being sort of in pop, in the popular imagination uh, thought of as the kind of the more broad apology to to Indigenous peoples for not just the stolen generation, but for you know all, all of the all of the sins of the invading force is just is I think that's absolutely true, and it's it's very depressing. No, it is. It really is. But again, it comes down to that. It comes down to that bigger picture. Bigger picture. We 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 were asking about about the statues. Is is this? Is that no one actually has any any way of understanding what history is really? I mean, other than just you know, the kind of colloquialism, which is you know, it's events in the past. But how how on earth the past comes to inform the present is just no one has any idea. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a really big question we're we're getting onto here, um, but a very interesting one. I mean, what is what is the genuine political function of history? The problem here, I think, we've, we've already hit on it, is that most people don't know much about history, and uh, presumably we're not going to really change that i mean i mean this is this is a complaint from the right as well of course right the idea that there's not enough history taught in schools or the wrong history is taught for, for the point of view of either of us i mean you actually have a have a although you know I've introduced us being philosophers you have quite a considerable background in the discipline of history um i'm not so much but i at least dabble in in history and yeah from from this point of view this stuff all looks ridiculous and but what do, what do you do at a, at a kind of demotic level like what are what are ordinary people I mean, ordinary people have to, I think, you know, however unconsciously or, or uncritically, always have some kind of conception of their place in history. So I think ev everyone has to have some vague understanding of, of historicity. But I think, you know, today it's, it's the thinnest it's ever been, right? Because I think there's also a popular understanding the Whig interpretation of history has, has won out and people, people understand history as a kind of, you know, technological progress, which we're the apex of. Consequently, you know, the past is just this inchoate, you know, the past is just like this, this realm where there were like dragons. I mean, it's basically Game of Thrones. <laughs> you know, it's the South Park episode where Mr. Garrison is teaching history and he's just teaching the plot of Game of Thrones to the kids. Because he's, I mean, the, con the conceit being that he has genuinely confused Game of Thrones with actual medieval <laughs> No, I was going to say I, Snoop Snoop Dogg. Oh no, he's Snoop Lion now. I think, or does he go back to Snoop Dogg? I can't remember. You know, the artist that is Snoop. Um, I, I don't know whether he said this jokingly or not, but he did say that he watches Game of Thrones for historical reasons. I, I'm sure he was taking the piss, but um, either way, it, it illustrates the point. That that was that's some real boomer tier reference, James. I, I feel like that Snoop Lion <laughs> thing. Like, a single album that Snoop Dogg did like ten years ago. That you've read about in the Guardian, you've got our oh, Snoop Dogg's called Snoop. Dogg. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh, well, fuck me up. That's fucked. <laughs>
That's so fucked. I apologize. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's borderline racist, but yeah. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, but in my defence, I did think he had had done more than one album on the Snoop line, but uh, I think that's right though. In your your point, the point about the wig vision of history is that I think that's it's this idea that actually, really. Two things. One is that history just becomes a kind of mythology, right? Where so, for you know, the conservative desire that we need to teach more history in class is actually a very specific desire to teach a particular understanding of what happened, right? But it's so there's there's it's, it's history as a kind of proceeding of events. That's one. But then there's also and the fact that those events tend to be myth like um, mythologized in many ways. But it's also then there's the other position, which is to say that actually the past has no relation to the present. That is, you know. There's no history, historical events and the sort of the struggles of the past, this kind of thing, have no actual bearing on the present. And that's a weird, these are two weird positions to have because actually they don't, they don't actually, they can't both be the case, right? But we both, we want them to be the case. Yeah, I'm genuinely thinking about this, which is probably not the best thing to do on a podcast. It just means total silence. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. So... And it, I mean, what you point out is absolutely right. Namely, that on the right, in particular, you 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 see almost you know, simultaneously these 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 ideas coexisting. That we you know are the forget about the past; it's all in the past now. But also, there's this other past that's tremendously important to remember, which is just a completely self-serving cherry pick. And on the left, there's this idea of the past as a kind of really an accumulation of grievances, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's Marx's line, right? It's the, the nightmares of, what is it? Nightmares of the past weighing on the brains of the living? Like it's... This... Yeah, like the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. But it, this, this, the, for, the, for the left, it's like the past is this, this morass of injustice which we need to, to get rid of, which is why the, you know, the left likes toppling statues. I mean, it's, 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 and it's a, it's a left-wing iconoclasm. I mean, and it, you know, this is, I mean, you're absolutely right to say that, you know, fundamentally the problem is that neither of these, these perspectives remotely understand history. And what history is, is a reservoir of absolutely off-chops weird shit. Yes, that is so true. Yes, that's that's it. That's I'll I'll die on this hill because that's, that's but that's what you get, right? If you no, that's go right. And, no, what you get, what you get if you go to medieval Europe, what you think you're going to find, like if you if you listen to the right, you think you're going to find like a, a well-ordered society, and you know, and and if you're on the left, you think you're going to find racism, but you don't find anything that resembles. I mean, this is the the beauty of history is how incredibly foreign it is doesn't resemble the present doesn't obey our coordinates at all what you go if you go to medieval england you don't find racism in any recognizable sense you don't find um anything that the right value what you find is people walling themselves up on the side of a church and someone will come and feed them every day and they stay there for 20 years and that is completely incomprehensible to anyone today and that is why history is so great that's exactly right. And, and I think that, that puts its finger on it, is that the past is really fucking weird and we drastically underestimate how foreign it is, I, I think. And I think that's exactly right. You know, people, people sort of saying the idea that, you know, you go to the Middle Ages or to ancient Greece or wherever it might be and all you'll find is kind of 
racist and sexist people, right? It's just, it sort of misses the point because, of course, on the one hand, it's true. But on the, other, on the other hand, you know, this is a world in which, in the case of ancient Greece, you know, you, you believe in the fates. And, and, and believing in the fates is the equivalent of believing in, like, gravity today, right? It's just, it's, just, it's, it's incontrovertible. It's not something that's up for debate. The idea that your life is at the mercy of the gods is just something that we don't understand and we never will. And that's, I mean, that's just an example. But I agree with you entirely. And I don't know what you said. I think history is an amalgamation of weird shit. And that is precisely correct. The next question is to say, how does that inform the present? And, and if it does at all. But the, I mean, the difficulty, the real practical difficulty, if we, you know, I, I don't, I'm hesitate to do this, to go back to what we're just discussing, because I, I'm worried that it's just intractable. But this, this question of how we deal with recent history is so, is so difficult from this point of view. Because, so if we, if we, like Churchill's like a really clear example, and this is the thing that's big in the UK now, because there's been this kind of serial defacing of the statue of Churchill outside of Parliament in, in England, in London. And, okay, so, I mean, there's this kind of defence of Churchill that runs, Churchill was a man of his time, everyone in Churchill's day was a racist, therefore, you know, you can't judge him by today's standards. Which has a grain of truth, right? I mean, it, it is true that the reason Churchill was so virulently racist is he lived in a time when being virulently racist was, like, normal, if not encouraged. You can, of course, and people are left have objected, well, you know, Actually, even by the standards of his time, Churchill was very racist, which is true, but he was within the normal range. But what, what do we then say? I mean, to, to be honest, I mean, the, you know, the, the problem here is precisely a problem of myth-making, namely that since the Second World War, the UK basically, I mean, the national myth in the UK, which now is clearly falling apart, was this national myth based on Britain's victory in the Second World War in which Churchill has the absolute starring role and therefore is an absolute national hero. And of course, that entire history is largely historically inaccurate, right? It's, it's a myth. Yeah. And it, it's, a, it's a basically pointless myth that we should probably dispense with. But the idea, I mean, the idea that we have to dispense with that myth because it's tainted with racism. Like it kind of misses the point because the myth isn't a racist myth. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I feel like it's been mythologized to the extent that the real opinion, the fact that Churchill presided over the killing of millions of Indians, because that's not part of what people think of when they think of Churchill. I'm not, I'm, as I say, I think we need to get rid of the myth anyway. Mm. But I mean, I don't know if the, if, if the actual attempt here is to bring up the reality of Churchill in order to get rid of this pernicious national myth. Maybe that is exactly what's happening and it's entirely appropriate. I think so. And I think it depends. It dep and again, it comes down to the nature of, of myth is that, you know, generally speaking, you can't just disenchant myths. You know, you don't just eliminate them. You know, you don't say, here's the, here's the actual rational explanation. Here's why you don't need the myth anymore. The myth goes away. Like the whole point is that you keep getting these rational explanations or those say non-mythical explanations and the myths, if anything, become more powerful, right? Um, that, that's the kind of cold confusion of the enlightenment is that the, 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 the expectation that superstition would be eliminated because of reasons X, Y, Z, and they weren't. But I mean, but I think you're right though, in the sense that, you know, I think the attempt here is to show here are all the other sides of Winston Churchill and that in itself is a very kind of small and controlled um, disenchantment, which I think is actually 
valid and important and will probably work. The broader problem of, you know, for example, the national mythology and its relation to the war and all this kind of stuff, I don't think that that doesn't end. It just kind of it morphs. It just works on itself until something else emerges. Yeah, it's, it's difficult because the, the question of what the new national mythos could be. I mean, this is, yeah. this is the difficulty. I mean, this is the difficulty in Australia's sake because it's, it's a little bit unclear to me that this anodyne, we are all Australians, you know, Aborigines as the first Australians rather than victims of Australia as a project are, are many of the first Australians and trying to assimilate everything within, you know, basically anodyne and multicultural vision of Australia. It's genuinely unclear to me whether that can act, whether that's actually a strong enough mythos to function in the role of national cohesiveness that it's being cast in. Yeah, and I think that's probably why the conservative project is to try and base it in something like Gallipoli or a combination of Gallipoli and uh, and the twenty sixth of January, because you're on, in some ways you're on sure footing in terms of mythologies, because you can you know you can you can you can birth a nation in in blood and sand. Um, presumably, so that would seem to be the, the the point to that conservative project, whether whether like it's like conscious or not. Yeah, it's a really it's an interesting one. I mean, uh, the the question that occurs to me is to what extent it's possible to 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 substitute the Anzac myth for the First Fleet myth. I mean, because the the way that I mean, this is notoriously shown when when you know a few years ago when you know Australia Day started becoming more contentious. And it became clear that many public figures in commentating about it didn't know what Australia Day was, co- was commemorating. So <laughs> there was a famous, there was a famous example, I can't remember who it was, it was a prominent Labour politician who made some comments about it and actually revealed they didn't realise it was the, the commemorating the day. But this actually is quite, again, this kind of goes to the point I was making, which is that by, and this I think is part of the, part of the reaction to the anti-Australia Day discourse, which is Australia Day was just understood to be like a day Right, where you celebrate Australia, and that people had no understanding that it had a historical basis at all. Right, mm. it's just you're in the middle of summer, you've chucked some thongs on, you're going to drink some beers. Like, that is what Australia Day was for people. It had no historical dimension at all. And the fact that it had basically is quite obscure historical referent, which is then, you know, has, has been really publicly problematized. But then, it, you know, you end, up, you end up with this great confusion of like people like me every year being on this kind of like, People, university-educated people in Central Sydney, being on a big march every year, protesting against Australia Day, and then you know, out, out in the suburbs, people just kicking back and relaxing and having no idea why we're you know doing this. I mean, Anzac Day is a bit different because Anzac Day very explicitly has a historical reference, but a falsified one. That's right. Yeah, but Australia Day, you know, Anzac Day, like there's there's this interesting recuperation with Anzac Day because you can point to the fact there were like Aboriginal people who fought in the First World War. But I don't think that was a particularly typical scenario. And I think it's a, there's a kind of, there's like, oh, there's this explanation, oh, there were some Aboriginal Anzacs, therefore Anzac Day is an inclusive and not in any way like a racist and imperialist enterprise, which would be the obvious interpretation of Australian soldiers going to invade Turkey. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And, 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 and also the fact that, you know, that there's lots of stories of, you know, brutal racism within the Australian army and, and elsewhere. And also the fact that, you know, Aboriginal people were, were encouraged and expected to fight in the wars in the first war, the second world war, but weren't even, weren't even considered citizens. Right. And then, and then their, their treatment when they got home was abominable. You know, this is, this is, it's just, again, complete falsification of the events and the idea that representation somehow equals respect is just insane. Yeah. I mean, uh, the bigger problem with Anzac Day, which I haven't mentioned so far is, as far as I could see, is that, you know, it was 
again, I mean, as I was alluding to, you know, in one way, it was people went and fought and died not as Australians, but for the British Empire, for, for the British for Empire, king and country, and that meant the British Empire. That's what they were doing at a time when Australia was very deeply divided on basically sectarian lines about the war, where, you know, the, most people, or a significant mass of the Australian public were opposed to the First World War, which is why Australia never had conscription. Uh, where, therefore, the you know, people who, who went and fought at Gallipoli were really, were, you know, I mean, although they involved people from various different communities in Australia and were involved in, in Anzac, they were predominantly specifically of a of british protestant stock not even general australian anglo-celtic stock so they were they were fighting you know as british you know narrower sense even than the extent to which white australians were considered british um demonstrating their loyalty to the to the empire from that point of view and in what was an unambiguous invasion and a failed one you know, it's just it's it's it is mind blowing that, that that is that is the that is the event they choose to uh, birth a nation on. That is the one thing though that I, I maybe is redeemable about this that I quite like the idea that Australia conceives of itself as founded in abject failure. <laughs> yeah, it's that, true. That's true. That is a really interesting. I mean, that is that actually speaks to an aspect of the Australian national character that I could perhaps get behind, which is like, uh, you know, Aussies, we give it a go, even though you know, <laughs> it's kind get... of the psych- It's kind of the psychological tell, isn't it? Like, it's 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 that, that's the that's the true character of of of, uh, of the sort of modern Australian, I suppose, if there, if there is one. As, as is well documented, right, the change in the Anzac myth in Australia was really catalyzed by Mel Gibson's preposterous Gallipoli film. Um, although I say preposterous, but I mean, by the standards of Mel Gibson's films, not that preposterous, which created, managed to create, but very subtly, I mean, I mean probably unintentionally, this idea that the poor Anzac, you know, Australians' troops were sacrificed by, by an uncaring British officer corps. So uh, Australia, rather than being the perpetrator of imperialism, Australians were actually like these victims of imperialism. But yeah. I mean, of course, that, I mean, even actually at the level of the film, it's not true that, the, you know, the British officers were Australian officers. They just had posh accents because they were obviously posh Australians. But actually, it's, it's simply not the case that, and also considering all the Anzacs were volunteers and the rest of it, it's, it's simply not the case that Australians were used as cannon fodder by an uncaring British Empire, although I often get in trouble for saying this in Australia. But, but I mean, no, no, no more than anyone else. I mean, I mean, in so far as significantly less, significantly less. I mean, compared no, exactly. to ordinary British people who were forcibly. Sure. So, if you if you're actually if you're British in in Britain in this period, you were forcibly drafted and sent yeah, to yeah. die in Flanders. It's the the situation of of the Australian, yeah, the, we're all, the all volunteer Australian force. I think. I mean, I'm not saying it was great. But uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel it's also the case there were more British soldiers uh, at Gallipoli than, than Anzacs. So it wasn't like yeah. it was just, oh, we, this, no. this crazy endeavor. Of course, we haven't mentioned, of course, the connection that mastermind entirely by one Winston Churchill. No, like, I was about to say, about to say it. So that was, that was his beachhead assault that was the failure. This, yeah, the, but the idea that this is a kind of unique, and of course, all, the other thing we haven't mentioned, Anzac, Australian, New Zealand wasn't even, it wasn't an Australian unit, it was an Australian and New Zealand unit, consequently uh, completely inapt to found Australian identity on, since it wasn't even... And also, it did, and also they, they, formed for the, they formed for the Boer War, so it, didn't even, it wasn't even the start of Anzac. No, but that, but that again, that, that's that oddly more... Is, you know, <laughs> I don't know why, I mean, why is that a worse myth? Like, why is fighting against, like... You know, exactly. 
racist Dutch people in South Africa. Uh, <laughs> it's right. Well, that's is that, clear, is that, that's clearly a better fight. Well, it, but it wasn't because it was clearly a fight for the British Empire. I mean, it's a problem. Like, what, what was the the overarching aim? Wasn't like to stop being racist. Like, it was it was to dis- displace one racism with another. So, yeah, I, I just. Um, what, what do we make of all this, Mark? What have we? Have we come to any conclusions? We absolutely haven't. We've been talking for ages. So yeah, yeah. we should probably stop on the basis that we're, you know, we, we've got an ongoing podcast series here. We don't have to sort all this stuff out right now. But uh, yeah, good chat to you, James. You too, Mark. Um, I mean, I, I still think, I think that the, the one thing we can conclude here is that history is an amalgamation of weird shit. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. That's what I said. And uh, yeah, it's good. Oh, God, don't, you know, you, don't, you shouldn't feel, I, I tell this to my students, like, you don't, you don't need to force a conclusion. Like, you know, if you said what you're going to say, you don't need no, that's to... that's right. I agree. I agree. But I, I, just want to, I just want to extract that small quote. I, I really okay. do. Okay.